Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Boldashino, and this is episode 51 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And today with me, fresh out of Singapore, is developer evangelist Gabe Hollenby. Welcome back to the show, Gabe. Thanks, Shane. And you know, it's great to be recording with you back in the country where I live instead of in a hotel room like last time. Lucky you. I may be in Melbourne today, but I think I'm going to be editing this 40,000 feet above the ground. Hopefully, it'll make a good dent in an international flight. Now, Gabe, there's a reason I have you back here today with me. I'm glad you're here riding Wingman because today, as you know, we get feedback from our listeners. We are going to embark on a themed episode based on listener feedback before the next episode alternating between another update show. All right. So what's the theme? Well, as I said, I brought you here for a reason, given your developer background. So Gabe, when I started out you know, in this caper near 20 years ago writing an application, I would often initialize my application with an 8.0 connection string even perhaps playing with the Microsoft Jet Engine. I think version 2.6 was the latest last time I played with that. Ah, the memories. Figured out what I'm talking about here, Gabe? Yeah, you know, that brings back memories for me too. You've got to be talking about databases, but please tell me we're not here to talk about Jet. So spot on, we are going to be talking about databases. What I just described was my early foray into relational databases in the form of Microsoft Access and Microsoft SQL, but it is no longer the early 2000s. So Gabe, today we're going to talk about the modern relational database built for the cloud that combines the performance and availability of a traditional enterprise database with the simplicity and cost effectiveness of open source databases, Amazon Aurora. So prepare your tables as in this episode, we're going to be selecting some really cool topics around Aurora. I feel like you should have said prepare your statements, but you know, we can get the tables ready. Point is, plenty of records returned in that record set from your query. Your memories might be stuck in the 2000s, Shane, but let's bring this episode into the modern world and talk about the awesomeness of Amazon Aurora. And by the way, you do know my daughter's name is Aurora, don't you? So yeah, I think you picked the right guy to co-host this episode. So before we talk about Aurora, the service, not my daughter, let's jump into the news. Uh, so is it possible to have a bit of a slow news cycle here at AWS? I mean, you know, plenty of new features and updates this month, but on the regions and availability zone front, no change from our prior episode with 66 availability zones across 21 regions with 12 more in the plans. CloudFront is our ever-growing content delivery network, and it's hanging steady on at 187 edge locations. Speaking of CloudFront, I saw a few weeks ago that was late of June 2019, and something we haven't covered on TechChat, you can now monitor the, your Lambda functions associated with your CloudFront distribution, so I'm talking Lambda at Edge, directly from the CloudFront console. So if you are a Lambda at Edge user, perhaps you're performing a rewrite or some magic in that 50 milliseconds of time, you now get a revamped monitoring dashboard that lists all your CloudFront distributions and associated Lambda Edge functions. This allows you to quickly select and view both distribution metrics and associated function execution metrics. You get a streamlined distribution metrics view with aggregated Lambda at Edge for five XX errors that are locally grouped by distribution, which is going to make it easier to distinguish and troubleshoot whether you know 
a CloudFront 5XX error are actually caused by the origin or your function. Now, it may not be the news, Gabe, but I needed to slip that one in. Yeah, that's super cool. I had no idea. So thank you for sharing with me too. And now, you know, before I get my inner database administrator on, let's just do a quick update on summons and events. In the next month, we're in Beijing, China on the 31st of July. We're also in Canberra, Australia, my part of the world, for a two-day public sector summit on the 21st and 22nd of August. Yes, and in Mexico City, Mexico on the 29th of August. So other than summits, there are other events that tickle your fancy. I can see some pretty cool online on-demand tech talks from how to pick the right serverless application pattern through to container security and beyond. I'd be really surprised if you can't find something online that works for you. Ah, and don't forget about AWS Innovate. It's an online conference and it's coming up very soon now on July 18th. There's over 80 business and technical sessions with live question and answers and more. Speakers include AWS Tech Chat's very own Dean Samuels and me, Gabe Hollenby, as well. It's airing in multiple timings around the world in a Follow the Sun style model. And you can learn more at aws.amazon.com slash events slash AWS dash innovate. As I mentioned earlier, Gabe, I started playing with databases a while ago. I can't disclose my age here, but let's just say it was with IS4 and Apache 1.3. How about you, Gabe? Oh, yeah, that rings a bell. Uh, I first learned about relational databases back in 1999 when I was working on a trouble ticketing system for a tech support office where I worked. That was my first job was doing tech support. And that was built with PHP and MySQL hosted off of a server under my desk in the tech support office. Who hasn't had a LAMP stack under their desk? I think really it's a rite of passage for, <laughs> for, you know, for the budding devs. Maybe not so much in 2019. There's probably a more you know, modern approach of doing this. Now, it's obvious things have changed. We've moved from bare metal to hypervisors, the cloud era. But as Abraham Maslow once said, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And pre-Amazon Aurora, I think we had a lot of nails. Yeah, you know, I think if I'm following you here, uh, what you're getting at is that database engines have basically been the same for years and years. And while everything around these engines might have changed, the engines themselves have largely remained the same. They still depend on block-based storage, and they've still, for the most part, uh, got these tightly coupled compute and storage layers uh, in one self-contained unit. I mean, this harks back to yesteryears. This isn't really how things have to be anymore. Cloud brings a lot of things, but it allows customers to think differently about problems. The era of monolithic applications and scale-up systems are done. Yeah, and rightly so. You know, vertical scaling, it's still a completely acceptable strategy in some cases, but it shouldn't ever be the only strategy you've got. Yeah, today we speak of decoupled systems, you know, being able to deal with that unexpected failure because your systems are distributed and are scalable and you're able to, you know, partition and shard your data. But this becomes much bigger problem than it needs to be when you're using a database that tightly ties together compute and storage on the same host. Yes. And that nicely sets the stage for us to talk about Amazon Aurora, how it's different, and man, is there so much coolness to cover. Do you believe, Gabe, since its launch in 2014, Aurora is the fastest growing service in the history of AWS. So today we've got tens of thousands of AWS customers using Aurora for their relational databases, a number that's more than doubling over time. Yeah, Aurora is also the fastest growing human in my family. I don't get to make that joke very often, so thank you for indulging me. I totally believe it about Amazon Aurora and its popularity because it's consistently one of the services I hear the most praise about out in the field. So many customers tell me how easy it is to move their Postgres or MySQL workloads over to Aurora and how they see instant performance gains. 
I can also personally attest to this as we migrated a very large database from Postgres to Aurora at my last job and the workload got cheaper, more reliable, and faster. That's really hard to say no to. So today we're going to talk about Aurora and just like the last episode where Pete and I talked about IoT events where once AWS IoT was the main service and now it's called IoT Core. Well, Aurora is now one of many services that fit under the Aurora bandwagon. Today, Gabe, with your help, we're going to cover Amazon Aurora, Amazon Aurora Serverless and Amazon Aurora Global Database. And I think I'm going to give an overview before I let the dev in you help me riff through the finer parts here. So we've spoken on the show before about relational and non-relational databases. Amazon Aurora fits into the relational category. It combines the speed and reliability of high-end commercial databases such as your Oracle and Microsoft SQL Server with the simplicity and cost-effectiveness of open-source databases. Because of how it's designed, decoupling storage and compute, Aurora MySQL delivers up to five times the performance of MySQL without requiring any changes to your MySQL application. Similarly, Amazon Aurora Postgres SQL delivers up to three times the performance of Postgres SQL. Now, I think we should stop here for a second. I mean, Aurora is a database engine itself. It is, but, you know, kind of from a dev perspective, it isn't. I mean, officially it is, but from a developer's point of view, you don't need to install new drivers or anything. It comes in these two flavors in its traditional form. There's Amazon Aurora MySQL and Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL meaning we're compatible over the wire with both of these well-known and established database server network protocols. It means that as a dev, you just code your applications, drivers, and tools the way you already would today, talking to Postgres or MySQL, uh, and you can use it with Aurora with little or no changes. The Amazon Aurora engine is designed to be wire compatible with Postgres 9.6 and 10, and supports almost the entire same feature set of Postgres extensions that are supported with RDS for Postgres 9.6 and 10, making it easy to move applications between the two engines. Yeah, and on the MySQL front, the Amazon Aurora database engine is designed, just like Postgres SQL, to be wire compatible with MySQL 5.6 and 5.7 using the InnoDB storage engine. Certain MySQL features, like the MyISAM storage engine, are not available with Aurora. I'll say here, Gabe, digressing a bit, I moved my own long-established blog running WordPress to Aurora MySQL, and other than replicating data, you can look up our database migration service here, other than changing the connection string in the wp-config.php of WordPress, it was completely transparent to WordPress. And I think I made this change in WordPress 3x, and I'm on WordPress 5x now, and it's happily talking to Aurora, and it thinks it's talking to a MySQL database. Exactly. I mean, that's the whole beauty of it, right? So... What we've explained so far is that Aurora is a database engine, that it's MySQL and Postgres compliant, that it's faster than traditional offerings running Postgres and MySQL. But this is selling it a bit short. Yeah, the performance gains are one of the big reasons why customers make this shift. And when we talk about performance gains, I think we need to explain what they are. Storage and compute are decoupled, and this is a real key to Aurora being able to offer many multiple performance gains over RDS MySQL and Postgres SQL. So cue the virtual whiteboard. An Amazon Aurora DB cluster consists of one or more database instances and a cluster volume that manages the data for those database instances. And these instances are spread across multi-availability zones. We covered availability zones in episode 48, so you can either listen to episode 48 or pop the term AWS availability zones into your favorite search engine. You still with us here, Gabe? Yeah, I'm totally following along. You know, I might be a developer, but you're explaining things very clearly. 
Good one. Okay, so there are two types of database instances that make up an Aurora database cluster. You have the primary database instance, and this supports read and write operations and performs all of the data modifications to the cluster volume. Each Aurora database cluster has one primary database instance. Then there is the Aurora replica. So this connects to the same storage volume as the primary database instance and supports only read operations. Each Aurora database cluster can have up to 15 Aurora replicas in addition to the primary database instance. Yes, 15 replicas. And other than providing high availability, Aurora replicas can also offload read workloads from their primary database instance. And the latter part is really important as you develop your applications. You can offload reads across multiple replicas to improve the overall application performance. Now combine this with the other secret source and without divulging all the details, the database engine is tightly integrated with an SSD-based virtual storage layer, which has been purpose-built by us to reduce writes on the storage system to minimize lock contention and eliminate delays created by database process threads. Yeah, so there's a lot of like modern development, you know, database technology science going into making this better. So you're saying it's faster, but that's kind of weasel wordy. I mean, this is the Tech Chat podcast. Our audience wants facts and figures. So looking through the lens of MySQL, uh, our tests with SysBench, which is an open source database benchmarking tool on an R3 8x large instance, showed that Amazon Aurora delivers over 500,000 selects per second and 100,000 updates per second, five times higher than MySQL running the same benchmark on the same hardware. There's detailed instructions on this benchmark and how to replicate it yourself, which is super important whenever you're trying to benchmark something, you need to be able to replicate it and publish instructions for other people to do so. And so we've got these instructions up on the Amazon Aurora MySQL Performance Benchmarking Guide. So plop that into your search engine of choice and you should be able to find it. Yeah, and if you do look up this benchmarking guide, it's from June of 2010. And if you do look at this benchmarking guide, it is from June of 2019, so it's up to date. You'll see that under high concurrent load is where Aurora really stretches its legs over both MySQL and PostgreSQL. With almost everything, there's a trade-off. You just mentioned 5x of performance and the numbers do back it up. But it is worth mentioning that Aurora is about twice the price of either MySQL or PostgreSQL when comparing similar size instances. We say 2x, but your mileage really may vary. Now, we're recording this in July of 2019, and at this point in time, a DB R5 large in Aurora RDS MySQL is $0.29 cents an hour in US East 1, whilst a DB R5 large for RDS MySQL is $0.20 cents per hour. So we're looking at about 50% more, and this is for a single instance in both Aurora and RDS. Instance sizes run from T's through to R4 16x large, so there's something that should meet your needs in either Postgres, SQL, or MySQL. Yeah, and so we, you know, we talked a little bit about you know, compute there, but storage is decoupled away from compute, and Aurora today supports some pretty big databases. So the minimum storage you can allocate is 10 gigabytes, and it's based on your Aurora usage. It'll automatically grow up to a maximum of 64 terabytes, and it grows in 10 gigabyte increments with no impact to your database performance, which is super cool. There's no need to provision any storage in advance. Yeah, that is really cool. Like I remember so many times in the past working you know, for large websites, having to provision LUNs or disk drives to a relational database. No impact to database performance 
And that is really cool. So you can save money by only allocating the amount of storage you need up front. Just on storage, quickly, there is an additional storage cost of 10 cents per gig and 20 cents per million IO requests. And this is for US East 1, and it is in July 2019. And one last thing I think we should touch on is maintenance. You know, often an idea you have or an app you build turns out good, your website becomes popular, and that's awesome. And it's a good thing, which puts more demand on your database engine, which is maybe not such a good thing for the database engine. You know, maybe you don't have a caching layer or you have a really heavy number of writes to reads in that ratio. Or perhaps someone writes, let's say, in air quotes, some poor performing SQL code. Yes. Okay. So let's let's run with that. You know, what do you do? Uh, this is another big win with Aurora as a replacement for Postgres or MySQL, as you can scale the compute resources allocated to your database instance, either via the console or via CLI or the SDK. Now, memory and CPU resources are modified by changing your database instance class. And when you modify your DB instance class, your requested changes are applied during what we call a maintenance window, which you get to specify. Now, alternately, you can always uh, check the apply immediately flag in the web console, for example, uh, to apply your scaling request immediately. Uh, both these options will have an availability impact, of course, for a few minutes as the scaling operation is performed. I want to move to something a bit more special and modern about Aurora. But before we do this, let's talk a bit more about storage as, in my mind, it's the key to Aurora. So Aurora automatically divides your database volume into 10 gigabyte segments spread across many disks. Each 10 gigabyte chunk of your database is replicated six ways across three availability zones. And it's designed to transparently handle loss of up to two copies of data without affecting database write availability and up to three copies without affecting read availability. Aurora storage is also self-healing, so data blocks and disks are continuously scanned for errors and are repaired automatically. And let's say things do go pear-shaped. Look, we hope they don't, but obviously, you know, you need to plan for failure. Remember the saying, everything fails all the time? Unlike other databases, after a database crash, Aurora doesn't need to replay the redo log from the last database checkpoint, which is typically five minutes in most database engines, and confirm that all changes have been applied. This reduces the database restart time to less than 60 seconds in most cases. So in summary, if you're a user of Postgres SQL or MySQL today, take a good look at Aurora. You know, Shane, you said you wanted to speak about something a bit more special and modern. I recall seeing an email you posted on our Chime channel about Aurora Serverless. Uh, Piero, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, from Germany asked a question about setting the capacity on Aurora Serverless programmatically. And I saw you answered. Did you have to look that up in the documentation? I don't think I'm going to dignify that with a response, Gabe. And by the way, we need to talk about you coming back to Tech Chat. <laughs> but yes, I answered the email. And look, we're all friends here. So yes, I needed to hit our doco to find the exact commands. Just no on the shame email. in that. No shame at all. All right. All friends. So look, just on the email, remember, we like your feedback and even tech questions. Just don't make them too hard. So feel free, awstechchat at amazon.com. Before we spoke about Aurora and just like the move to single page apps with S3 static hosting and dynamic content via you know, API gateway or application load balancer these days to eliminate the need for servers, there's another aspect of Aurora and that is Aurora serverless. God, yes. And it's so cool. You know, we have spoken about Aurora serverless in past episodes, but we should do another refresher now that it's generally available. So Aurora serverless is an on-demand auto-scaling configuration for Amazon Aurora. Though it's important to note that today it only supports the MySQL flavor. 
So seriously, no servers? I mean, of course, there's a server somewhere along the line, uh, but from a solution perspective, from your experience, it harks back to the same principles as serverless for other AWS serverless services like Lambda. There's no servers to manage on your on your behalf. You know, the way this works is similar from an architectural implementation perspective. There's this proxy fleet, and we maintain a warm pool of capacity, and we also separate the compute out from the storage uh, and, you know, basically, uh, with Aurora Serverless, a database will automatically start up, shut down, and scale capacity up or down based on your application's needs. It lets you run your database in the cloud without managing any database instances. It's simple. It's cost-effective uh, for a lot of work case. It's a simple and cost-effective option for infrequent, intermittent, or unpredictable workloads. You know, just a, a couple uh, example use cases to dig into that a little bit more. You know, so maybe you have an app that is only used a few minutes several times per day or per week. Maybe it's a low-volume blog. Uh, I don't want to make a dig at you, Shane, but, you know, maybe you want to migrate your, your WordPress blog over to uh, Amazon Aurora, you know, or over our serverless, rather. Uh, with our serverless, you're only going to pay for the database resources that you consume on a per-second basis uh, as long as you're consuming some resources. And we'll talk about a way that you can optimize that later. Uh, I would say also... You know, variable workloads, you've got a lightly used app, maybe peaks of 30 minutes to several hours a day for a few times each day or several times a year, maybe like an app in the human resources department of your company uh, or operational reporting application, right? With Aurora Serverless, you don't need a provision for your peak or your average capacity. And of course, another one that I think is really important to our audience is development and test databases, right? I mean, our, as developers, we use databases typically during our working hours only uh, for development and test you know, workloads, but we don't need them on nights or weekends, or at least we shouldn't because we should be having a healthy work-life balance. Uh, with Aurora Serverless, our databases can automatically shut down when they're not in use uh, you know, with us, without us having to remember to turn them back on when we need them again. They can come back up automatically. Good one there, Gabe. So look, I think I'm actually going to try Aurora Serverless on my WordPress blog. So the ability to have a serverless SQL database is so great, but let's dig into it a bit more and talk about the control plane available to me. Even though it's serverless, there is still probably some configuration I can make. What are the knobs available with Aurora Serverless? Yeah, sure. So we'll talk about the most important ones. The most important concept to get is that you tell your Aurora Serverless cluster how much compute and memory it should ever use by specifying a minimum and maximum Aurora Compute Unit, or we call them ACUs for short, and that it, that's what it's allowed to scale from and to. So each ACU comes with two gigabytes of RAM and a corresponding amount of compute. You can think of this really similarly to how you allocate RAM to an AWS Lambda function, and you correspondingly get more CPU with larger RAM allocations. The lowest you can select for a minimum is one ACU, and the largest you can select for the maximum is 256 ACUs. So one ACU, again, gives you two gigs of RAM. The maximum 256 ACUs gives you 488 gigs of RAM. Uh, and on the storage side, it automatically scales from 10 gigabytes to 64 terabytes, exactly the same as the storage in a standard Aurora DB cluster. Now, the other really cool thing to take note of is that even though you can go as low as specifying only one ACU as your cluster minimum, you can also configure the cluster to automatically pause after a configurable amount of inactivity. The default and minimum amount is five minutes of idle time, but you can tune that to a higher amount of time, up to, say, 24 hours if you want. 
If you enable this feature, it means that if or when you have quiet periods of no access at all, you don't pay for compute resources at all, just for the amount of storage your cluster is using. This can work out to some huge cost savings for infrequently accessed databases with large idle periods, like probably your WordPress blog, for example. Of course, it will take time for a cluster to go from a pause state to being able to serve queries again. I mean, there's physics involved. Nothing is magic. Uh, just before recording, I did my own personal test, and it took about 30 seconds for my one ACU maximum scalable size cluster to go from a pause state with the zero compute units in use back to available and responding to a query with uh, its one ACU in use. And this sort of delay might not be too great for web apps, but it, look, it could be totally fine for the occasional back office reporting query, for example, or you know, especially for developer test workloads, like I mentioned. Anyway, yeah, the exactly. point is the the option is available, but it's good to understand the behavior profile before you enable it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think understanding what Aurora Serverless brings and using it appropriately. So yeah, for my blog, I might be able to use it. I feel richer already, you know, in all seriousness. These days, my blog does have quiet time, so Aurora Serverless may be a great candidate. But if you know you have applications that can deal with you know timeouts of up to thirty seconds before database availability is there, Aurora Serverless could be just for you. So that covers how we configure Aurora Serverless scaling limits. But when does it actually scale up or down, Gabe? Right. So what's so cool about Aurora Serverless is that it will auto scale up based on CPU utilization, number of connections, memory usage, or other issues that can be resolved by a scaling up event. When the system detects that it should scale up, it waits for what we call a scaling point to be reached. This means things like no long running queries or transactions in progress, no temp tables or locks in use, that sort of thing. And once a scaling point is reached, the system will auto scale appropriately. Now, also, a recent change in Aurora Serverless that listeners might not be aware of is that you can now also specify how a capacity change is applied to your database cluster. By default, Aurora Serverless finds a point when the capacity change is, can, will be a non-disruptive to your application, like I said, one of these scaling points. Uh, and if it's unable to find such a point, the capacity change is timed out and discarded. Instead, now, you can optionally configure your cluster to apply capacity change even when a scaling point can't be found. If you opt to forcibly apply capacity changes, any active connections to your database might get dropped. This configuration could be used to more readily scale the capacity of your Aurora serverless database cluster if your application is resilient to connection drops, right? That's the important point to, to stress there. You don't want to turn mm -hmm. this on unless your application could handle maybe getting a query hung up in the middle of it and not know how to retry. Yeah, exactly. And look, and I'm guessing automatic database maintenance or updates are applied during those scaling points as well. You got it. Uh, unlike Aurora with provision capacity, with Aurora Serverless, you don't configure a maintenance window. Instead, the maintenance happens automatically if or when it's needed and when it finds a scaling point. If it can't find a scaling point available after a day of deciding that it wants to do maintenance and is looking for such a point, you'll get a notification to remind you that you need to go force that maintenance. Or if you don't do anything, it will automatically happen after seven days if it's unable to find a point. Okay, so that sounds really cool. Are there any other awesome things we should know about Aurora Serverless Gate? Yeah, let me quickly just mention two more things. First, one really nice feature is that with Aurora Serverless, the cluster storage volume is always encrypted. That's great, right? We always talk about you should encrypt like everyone is watching. Uh, not because, you know, we necessarily are. I don't mean we in the AWS sense, but, you know, the evil people around. But it's just a good practice. Now, you can choose your own key if you want, uh, but you cannot turn off the encryption. 
So if you don't specify a key, it uses a default key that's you know tied to your account. The other cool thing I just want to touch on really quickly is that one of Aurora Serverless's newer features is the data API. So this API lets you interact with your Aurora Serverless cluster over HTTP instead of establishing and managing a long-lived connection. Uh, this makes it really great for using inside an AWS Lambda function, for example, or an AWS AppSync resolver. And the data API uses database credentials that are stored in AWS Secrets Manager, so you don't even need to pass credentials directly into your API call. Instead, you pass the ARN, or the uh, Amazon Resource uh, name, to a shared secret stored in Secrets Manager. Uh, you have to enable the data API in your Aurora Serverless cluster, and you'll need to give an IAM principal interacting with the data API permission to do so, either by using the predefined Amazon RDS data full access IAM policy that we've predefined, or you can tailor make your own more specific policy. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned Lambda and AppSync, but another cool case for using the data API might be from a shell script, right? Instead of having to have a MySQL or Postgres driver in your shell script using the AWS command line interface now, you can make a call out to Aurora Serverless, you know, to make effectively a SQL query and get some data back. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I love how we're diving deep here and talking about things like IAM policies. I mean, all this talk of serverless sounds good, but as we say time and time again, you need to understand the capabilities and limitations of a product so it's not tech for the sake of being tech. The cornerstone of any good developer or architect, I would say. You know, pick the right tool for the job and not always use the same hammer. So let's continue our deep dive here. There are reasons why this shiny object that is Aurora serverless may not be a good fit for you and it's tech chat, so let's talk about them. Sure. Here's a few limitations and points of note when working with Aurora Serverless. Aurora Serverless is a single AZ system. If an availability zone goes down, a new cluster will be auto-created in a different availability zone. Aurora Provision Cluster, the non-serverless mode, takes about 60 seconds to fail over in this sort of case. But Aurora Serverless failover time is currently undefined, because it depends on the demand, capacity, and availability in the other availability zone. Also, the port number for connections must be 3306. So if you need to use a non-standard MySQL port, this is going to rule out Aurora Serverless, unless you would prefer to just use the data API, which doesn't require a port, of course, because it goes over yeah. HTTP. And you can't give an Aurora Serverless database cluster a public IP address. You can access an Aurora Serverless database cluster only from within a VPC. Yeah, you know, I would question why you would want to expose your database publicly anyhow. Uh, it's not a good practice. Uh, but yeah, also don't forget that you can access your Aurora Serverless database from outside the VPC if you enable the data API that we just mentioned. And moving on, each Aurora Serverless database cluster requires two AWS private link endpoints. Now we covered on previous episodes AWS private link, but if you reach a limit for private link endpoints within your VPC, you can't create any more Aurora Serverless clusters in your VPC. Aurora Serverless doesn't support the following features. So loading data from an Amazon S3 bucket, invoking an AWS Lambda function with an Aurora MySQL native function, advanced auditing, Aurora replicas, Backtrack. Now, Backtrack is cool. Uh, if you're not familiar with Backtrack, pop that into your favorite search engine, Aurora Backtrack. You'll see why it's, it's so cool. cool. Database cloning, IAM database authentication, cross-region read replicas, restoring a snapshot from a MySQL database instance, migrating backup files from Amazon S3, and Amazon RDS Performance Insights. Wow, there's a oh, fair I few things like there that we were just doing. Do. 
Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say it feels like uh, you're reading the uh, side effects may include blah, 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 blah that you see in like the American commercials for drugs. There we go. Okay. So look, Aurora Serverless, Gabe, I think we're done with. Can I mic drop and walk away? Hey, hang on there, buddy. We've got more to cover. Uh, We first spoke about Amazon Aurora, which at this point, I assume most people know about and they love it. I mean, I'm kind of making it sound like there's nothing special, but of course, really there is. Uh, We also just covered Aurora Serverless, but there's one more pillar of Aurora that we should dive into for this audience. And for various reasons, it's often beneficial, or maybe you could even say the holy grail, for your globally distributed applications to have a single relational database spanning multiple geographic regions. Yeah, look, not an easy feat to accomplish. You know, for those who've headed down this path before, you can either go down the application-level replication path or the storage-level replication path. Now, there's pros and cons of each approach. Application-level is going to give you that consistency and more checks and balances, whereas storage alone can be a recipe for disaster, especially when you don't own the links and so on. It's kind of like a TCP versus UDP decision, trading reliability versus performance. Yeah, and you know, it may sound trivial, but there were tremendous amounts of engineering feeds in developing Amazon Aurora Global Database. Yeah, and before you get into what it is and so on, services such as Aurora Global Database wouldn't be possible without the AWS network. Our global network provides a fully redundant 100 gigabits network that circles the world, linking our regions, and it's these investments that makes features like Amazon Global Database possible. If you're interested in seeing a visual map of our network, check out www.infrastructure.aws. We digress, Gabe. Yeah, but www.infrastructure.aws is a really cool website. People should definitely take a look. So... Aurora Global Database allows you to have your Aurora database span multiple AWS regions. It replicates your data with no impact on database performance, enabling fast local reads with low latency in each region and providing disaster recovery from region-wide outages. So in essence, it's Aurora that's a multi-region read with a single writable master. Putting my customer hat on here, things take time to replicate. You know, you say, Gabe, no impact, but let's say if I write, how long will it take for the write to be replicated to another Aurora database server in another region? And then consumers who connect, for example, a web server, will be able to read the previously written data from one region to another. Yep, I mean, look, to continue with your theme of UDP, Aurora Global Database uses storage-based replication, and we state that you should typically expect latency of less than one second for around 95% of the time. And again, that's due to the robustness and the power of the Amazon AWS global uh, network that we have. Achieving sub-minute is impressive, nonetheless, with most relational database engines in the same region, let alone globally. The Aurora cluster in the primary AWS region where your data is mastered performs both read and write operations. The cluster in the secondary region enables low latency reads. You can scale up the secondary cluster independently by adding one or more database instances, so Aurora replicas, to serve read-only workloads. And this can be up to 16 Aurora replicas. And really, the goal of Aurora Global Database System is to ensure your application in remote AWS regions experiences lower query latency when they read from a secondary cluster. Now, Gabe, Like Aurora Serverless, there are a few gotchas to be aware of for Aurora Global Database. So Aurora Global Database is only available for Aurora with MySQL 5.6 compatibility. You cannot use dbt2 or dbt3 instance classes for an Aurora Global Table. You have a choice of dbr4 or dbr5 instance classes. It's kind of obvious, but the secondary cluster has got to be in a different AWS region than the primary cluster. 
And, and there are some features that are not supported for Aurora Global Database, things like cloning and backtrack uh, or parallel queries. So quickly, you can create a global database via the console or the CLI. To create a new global database, you create the global database and the primary cluster that it contains, and then add a secondary cluster. If you have an existing Aurora cluster, you can take a snapshot and restore it to a new Aurora global database. There's a procedure to do this, so please search our doco. You can then add additional AWS regions to your database. From an application level point of view, we spoke about reading and writing data. But as a dev, Gabe, how do we go about this? Well, for read-only query traffic, you connect to the reader endpoint for the Aurora cluster in your AWS region. To run data manipulation language, or DML, or data definition language, DDL statements, you connect to the cluster endpoint for the primary cluster. This endpoint might be in a different region than your application. There is a single cluster endpoint associated with the primary cluster. That's what you use for write operations. So you could be using a DNS alias for your application, such as write.myapp.local, and have a Route53C name that the cluster write endpoint aliases. And also, you could use a similar approach for reading. You could have something like read.myapp.local and have it resolved to an endpoint in your local region to minimize application latency. Not only is that a good idea, but it's uh, really simple the way you put that, and it makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you think that way, Gabe. Okay, so look, we've certainly covered a lot around Amazon Aurora in this episode. And Gabe, I knew you were the right guy to do this. But I have to know, did you name your daughter after the database or what? Uh, I'll never tell. But let's do a quick recap here. Aurora, that's our fully managed MySQL and Postgres compatible database, purpose built for the cloud. It's got great performance and great value in the price department too. It can be up to five times faster than standard MySQL databases and up to three times faster than the standard Postgres database deployment. And it gives you enterprise-grade reliability at a tenth the cost of traditional options. It has a distributed fault-tolerant self-healing storage system, and it can auto-scale up to 64 terabytes per database instance of storage. You can have up to 15 really low-latency read replicas, and you get point-in-time recovery, continuous backup to Amazon S3, and replication across three availability zones. Super great. We then pivoted to Aurora Serverless, which is an on-demand auto-scaling configuration for Aurora. MySQL edition only for this stage, where the database will automatically start up, shut down, and scale capacity up or down based on your application needs. It enables you to run your databases with all the benefits that serverless brings, so your single-page apps can truly now be serverless. And then we close out talking about Aurora Global Database which is designed for globally distributed applications, allowing a single Amazon Aurora database to span multiple AWS regions. Again, it's only compatible with MySQL edition right now. It replicates your data with no impact on database performance, enabling fast local reads with low latency in each region and providing disaster recovery from region-wide outages. So listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome at awstechchat at amazon.com. And it's something that spurs us on. We've actually started a backlog for our episodes on what you want to hear about. Our next episode in a few weeks time will be a July 2019 roundup. But for now, I need to find my passport and pack. Oh, it's so blissful. For once, I'm not the one saying that. And if you want a tiny sneak peek behind the scenes, you can take a look at my Twitter feed for a little gif of me waving hello as I recorded my side of this podcast from Singapore here today. I'm Gabe Hollenby on Twitter, or you can just search the internet for AWS Gabe, and I'll likely be the first few matches. Anyway, until next time, bye for now. Bye for now, and keep on building. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.